Some Houston neighborhoods seem to flood every time it rains. So why do people keep rebuilding there? After Hurricane Harvey, sociologist Rachel Kimbrough, dean of Rice's School of Social Science, interviewed 36 women in one of Houston's frequent flooding neighborhoods. Her book, In Too Deep, gets into the ways that families and neighborhoods work. It's important stuff everywhere, as disasters such as wildfires and tornadoes affect ever more families. But nowhere does it hit home as much as it does here in Houston. It's Wednesday, February 23rd, 2022. I'm Lisa Gray, and this is CityCast Houston. Rachel, what drew you to write in too deep? What had you thinking about flooding and motherhood? I think like a lot of other people, maybe particularly in Houston, I've grown increasingly concerned about climate change and in particular what it means for the future of Houston. Um, and so when Harvey hit, I lived in a neighborhood near Bayou Oaks, which is the neighborhood featured in the book. Okay. And we should say that's not really its name. That's right. So because okay. I'm trying to protect the confidentiality and privacy of my respondents, that is a pseudonym for the actual neighborhood. But you lived in a neighborhood. We lived nearby. And so I had seen how the Memorial Day flood in 2015 and the Tax Day flood in 2016 impacted the neighborhood. And I just could not believe that they flooded again and more severely, much more severely after Hurricane Harvey. And I saw, had seen how the neighborhood showed this amazing resilience after the for prior two floods, but I wondered what would happen this time. And I wondered if people would start to leave. So you're about the same age as a lot of the mothers living here. You have kids about the same age. It's very easy to imagine what they were going through. Yes. And as a professional, you're thinking, oh, my God, what are the larger forces? Yes. I wondered about the impacts on the community as a whole, but also within the family itself. Thinking about those repeated losses of the home, something that's so important to families and to raising children. And in this case as well, in 2017, the loss of the school that yeah. the families were sending their children to. So it was loss on top of loss. And I was really concerned about them and also really curious about what they would decide to do. So tell us just a little bit about, quote, Bayou Oaks, unquote. Roughly, where is it? Why is it so flood prone? So it is flood prone because it is nearby Bray's Bayou in Houston, um, a bayou that has frequently overtopped, although not as dramatically as it did during Harvey. So it is near that. It is low-lying relative to some areas that surround it, and so that doesn't help either. So why would anybody want to live there? You're writing about upper-middle-class affluent people who have choices. They could afford to live somewhere that doesn't flood. So what the women in the book say is that they want to live close in. So that's a term, that's like a Houstonian term, right? Close in. Um, and, you know, not everybody can afford to live inside the loop. And so there's this ring of neighborhoods that are between 610 and Beltway 8 that people still consider close in. They wanted easy access to downtown, to the amenities, cultural amenities, uh, theater and symphony and museums. And they wanted access to the medical center where many people in the neighborhood work. 
location, location, location. They also were looking for the perfect school to send their children to, elementary school. And they, they were interested in all three levels, but most of the women that I spoke to in the book had children at the elementary school. Yeah. And they really felt that this school was perfect because it had good academic standards and it was also racially and socioeconomically diverse, which is something that they valued. So the neighborhood offered them the opportunity to live in an affluent, mostly but not entirely white neighborhood and send their kids to a racially diverse school, which was something they saw as kind of part of their identity as liberal urban women. As Harvey was coming in, a lot of the families were preparing, right? They had been through floods before. They know what's coming. What, what was happening? So the neighborhood had something that I call in the book flood capital. And by that, I mean... The families knew what to do to prepare for a flood. Um, e even the families that hadn't flooded before knew because of what their neighbors had been through, what they needed to do. It's sort of intellectual capital. It's knowledge capital. Exactly. It's knowledge. It's knowledge. We've been through it. We know the playbook. Yes. And, and in some cases, it's also equipment. So, you know, some families had acquired kayaks, life jackets, you know, things like that, too. Yeah. Um, but what was interesting about Harvey was that I really noticed a gender difference in how the couples approached preparing. So in many cases, not all, there were some exceptions, but in many cases, the, the husbands didn't think Harvey was going to be a big deal. And even if it was, it probably wasn't going to hit Houston. And so they didn't really see the need to do all of the work, which to be clear is a lot of work. Like what? What kind of work? So to completely prepare your home for a coming flood, if you had a second story, if you were lucky enough, you would take all of the furniture up to the second floor, get all the rugs, get all the books, pull all the drawers out of the cabinets in the kitchen and make sure there's nothing on the floor in the closet. And it was a lot of physical labor uh, that was going on. So what ended up happening is that the women took on most of that work themselves because their husbands either were at work or had decided that it wasn't worth it. They had plenty of time. They could do it at the last minute, you know, if it looked like they were going to flood. But the women were the ones that were really taking it on. Oh, man, that rings so true from stories that I heard around Houston. But it's great to hear it confirmed by sociological research. So one of the things I was really struck by was how determined a lot of the mothers were to make things seem as normal as possible while the flood was coming in. Yes. And there's another story in the book about a mother who actually her family had moved after the second flood only to flood in the new home after Harvey. And she came downstairs that morning and saw six inches of water on the first floor and just was in just livid. And what she did was she went down and into the water and she made breakfast for her family because she knew it was going to be a long day. And she just stood there as the water soaked up the legs of her pajama pants, cooking them dinner or breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> so what happened next? So not many of the families evacuated before Harvey. Only a few did. So many of them were having to evacuate their homes in the middle of the night um, in feet of water, trying to get their children to safety. Uh, many of them left their homes in boats. Others were crowded into neighbors' second stories for days with, you know, just a little bit of food, no AC. It was hot. Every, you know, remember, it was just absolutely brutally hot after Harvey. 
um, with no, no power, of course, no water. And the day the families came back to their houses, that was tough, right? You know, that's a, that's a day of a lot of devastation when you are seeing the, what the contents of your home look like. The things you had elevated in many cases were not elevated high enough for the waters that came in Harvey. Things you had put on top of an armoire had fallen over because the water dumped over any furniture that was standing tall. And I think one mother said it looked like everything had been put in a blender and shooken up and sprayed all over the inside of the house. And in addition to that, of course, everything is wet and it smells horrible. The smell, the, the women, you know, when they would talk to me about the aftermath, the smell just kept coming up, how bad it was, how terrible. It seemed like your home was toxic. That's how they felt all of a sudden. Ouch. And so how did it play out as time went by? As the weeks passed, it got harder and harder to juggle everything that the women were juggling. Two-thirds of the women in my book, so I interviewed 36 women, two-thirds of them had a full-time job outside the home. The other third identified as a stay-at-home mother. They were already juggling a lot before the storm. And afterwards, this recovery process really became like a second full-time job for them. And because of the gender division of labor within the household, the home was seen as primarily the wife's domain. And so then the recovery of that home also fell into her side of that divided labor. So the husband will help haul out the soggy carpet, but yes. it's the wife who's got to yes. marshal all the contractors. Yes. And the men did yeah. a tremendous amount of work, particularly immediately after the storm, but after that, it really started to fall into the laps of the women. And I would ask them, you know, was that negotiated? Did you talk about that as something that made sense for you to take on? And most of them would say, no, it was just, you know, it was assumed because I was the one who wanted to get us back into this home as soon as possible. And so it was my responsibility to do so. So why did they want to get back into those homes as soon as possible? They had flood insurance, most of them. They didn't have to go back. Right. They were very attached to the neighborhood. They had chosen it very carefully for all the reasons we talked about earlier. They did not want their children to have to go to a different school. That was very important to them. They felt like their children had lost their home. They were not going to okay. take them out of the community. What effect did all of this have on the families? So... I'm glad you asked about that because I really wanted to highlight how flooding impacts families and then to try to make a broader argument about how climate change will impact family life as well, more broadly. And that could include wildfires, for example, you know, doesn't have to just be flooding. I feel like women's voices and stories about families are sort of missing in all of the debate and discussion about climate change. And so I was really trying to bring that to the table. Right. I don't think of climate change as being part of the second shift. It's, right. Right. But it, you know. <laughs> but, right, but it really is. Right. So, right. Um, right. so there were all kinds of, of, of issues. So in addition to issues around the division of labor, like we talked about within the couple, within the household, um, that created tension in marriages, but that tension came from other way, other angles too. So financial tensions were huge, trying to 
you know, come up with the funds they needed for the renovation on top of insurance or to lift the home, all of that, very tense. Some of them were living in temporary quarters for a long time that were small and, you know, not conducive to privacy. How did the kids do? Some of the children seemed to just, you know, bounce back immediately and have no issues. But it was definitely the case. I heard this from, from the principal and also from some of the other mothers that at the, the new school where they had relocated the school community, when it would rain hard, that was a tough day because the children oh. would ask the teachers over and over, is it flooding? Is it going to flood? Is my mom going to be able to come and pick me up? So there's that kind of post-flood PTSD that I think Houstonians are, are familiar with. But just imagine that being in the mind of a child who, who can't understand that, you know, some rains are just rains. But some rains are yeah. scary rains, you know? <laughs> oh, man. After all that, I would just think that people would want to get as far from a place that floods as possible. But I've talked with people in other neighborhoods that flood who said that after Harvey, their neighborhoods grew friendlier, that they actually became more attached to them and less likely to leave. That's something documented in the literature about disasters in general, is that mm -hmm. often communities will say, well, it was the first time I really got to meet my neighbor because we had to work together. One of the um, mothers in the book had flooded uh, twice and, you know, had just completed renovations when Harvey hit. But she said this just this makes me want to stay more, not less, because I see what a wonderful community this is and how we all come together. How many of the families that you interviewed decided to stay? Out of the 36 families, eight of them did decide to leave Bayou Oaks, but only eight. And that was a big surprise to me. I really, when I started the project, expected a bunch more to go ahead and leave. Um, and the ones who did, most of them no longer had children attending the elementary school, which I think was a oh. big factor. They felt like they had gotten, you know, their schooling that they were looking for. And so they felt a little freer to leave. Um, but they were they were reluctant. They they did not want their neighbors to feel like they were abandoning them. There was a lot of social pressure to stay. Thinking about it as if I were an urban planner or if I were looking at federal flood insurance, this would terrify me because the big picture is people whose neighborhoods are the most likely to be affected are often the most attached to their neighborhood. Yes. And I, you know, I am not a flood policy expert by any means, but but what I'm hoping my book can do is illuminate the inner workings of families and decision making and help policymakers understand exactly that, why people are so attached to their community and can become more so after a disaster. And you're exactly right that that has to play into how we're thinking about flood insurance and mitigation policies and this thing called managed retreat, which is this idea of helping people around the world move away from flood-prone and other disaster-prone areas and you know, were I a managed retreat expert, you're exactly right. I would read this book and think, oh, no, <laughs> we have <laughs> we have a lot of work so nobody, to do. <laughs> nobody gets talked out of their neighborhood. No. And I think especially when it is one carefully chosen for a specific set of criteria and when children are in schools are involved in a big, complex 
multifaceted school district like HISD, when you, oh when you find yes. one that you love and are attached to, you will do anything to stay there. Thank you so much for talking with us. This is really fascinating. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, it is time for some Houston news. I am here with producer Dina Kesba. Dina, what is going on today? So I've got a couple of things. The first thing I read about today was that a judge had ruled that Deshaun Watson, who's the Houston Texans quarterback, can face questions under oath in about 22 civil cases that were filed against him by women who allege Deshaun of be it harassment, sexual harassment, all that happened during massage sessions. Aye, aye, aye. So when does all this hit the courts? So it's a little, there's a lot here. Um, Deshaun's attorney, Rusty Hardin, said in a courtroom that the Harris County District Attorney will likely decide by April 1st whether Deshaun will be criminally charged or not. And by the way, Deshaun has also been at the center of some alleged NFL trade rumors for months now. And even though he didn't play all season for the Texans, he's still technically on the active roster. Ooh. And he might have to come back to Houston a lot for court dates. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'll definitely be following on that story to see how it progresses. All right. What else are you reading? This is actually really cool. I read that Caribbean Airlines apparently changed up their routes and added direct flights to Houston because apparently that wasn't a thing before, which is pretty cool. Do you have a vacation planned? <laughs> I wish, but no. Um, for anyone who wants to travel, it's great. But Caribbean Airlines actually said the idea behind this is because they want to tap into Guyana's oil and gas industry by taking workers back and forth from Houston. So although... You know, they want to shuttle employees back and forth, and it's more of a business thing. I'm saying to all the explorers, hey, this is an advantage. Direct flights <laughs> to and from. The advantage of being in an oil and gas town. Yeah. Is this, is this out of hobby or intercontinental? Intercontinental. So book your flight. That's about it for today's show. We are still looking for suggestions about what you guys think would be great perks for a membership program. So please, let us know. What would interest you? What kinds of stuff would be fun? What would you be willing to pay for? Do you want an ad-free podcast? Do you want bonus episodes about this or that? Would it be fun to have events or shout-outs in the newsletter or discounts or freebies? Let us know. Email us, houston at citycast.fm, or call our voicemail, 713-489-6972. That's all for today. We'll be back tomorrow. Everything is going nuts on me. What is this?